This morning, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, please open to the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at five verses, verses 2 to 6. And the title for this is really Four Mandates for the Christ Follower. Uh, Four Mandates for the Christ Follower. It's very, very important that we understand when we open God's Word and we see God's instruction manual for the Christian, that it's not an instruction manual that gives you suggestions. You should maybe do this, you should maybe do that. No, it's, these are expectations and exhortations from God through the Apostle Paul for the church, in this context, Colossae, but also applicable to the church in the 21st century right here in GCCP. There is no difference in who Paul was writing to, in a sense. We are the, also the intended recipient of these uh, commands and, and the exhortation. And so when we look at it and open God's Word and we read God's Word, we have to see that this not only applies to us, but is expected of us in the way that we live our lives as followers of Jesus, as those who've been commanded to walk in the ways of the Lord and to use the Bible as literally the Christian's manual for life. Okay, that's the expectation that I have when I read it. So when we read it, we don't just read it to gain knowledge, but we read it to obtain knowledge in order to apply God's Word in a very uh, accurate way. That should be our goal when we open God's Word and to get to know the Creator of this world, our, our own Maker, in, in a much deeper level. And so in these five verses, we're going to look at four mandates that Paul outlines in his letter to this church. And so let me read for you uh, these verses, and then we'll sort of break it down, okay? So if you have your Bible with you, open to Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Paul writes, "...continue earnestly in prayer." being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time." Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the opportunity this morning to look into Your Word. May You open our eyes, open our minds to understand and to apply what You would want us to do, walk away from this message with uh, living out on a daily basis. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so four mandates. The first mandate we're going to look at is in verses 2 and 3, and that is to be devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Paul says to continue earnestly in prayer. To continue earnestly means to be constantly diligent. Notice that Paul does not say to, hey, you should have a prayer life. You should start a prayer life. He doesn't say that because the expectation is that they're already praying, and they should continue to keep doing it. It's assumed from Paul, in a sense, that this church, as believers, are in communion through prayer with God. You know, it should not be something that we have to be reminded to do, 
but rather to continue to do or to deepen more and more or to be more faithful to. That's the expectation of Paul. But not only to continue to do it more and more and to be vigilant in it, but the characterization of the type of prayer first is one of thanksgiving. One of thanksgiving. See, a thankful heart is more than just an intellectual abstract idea. See, if you're thankful, sometimes the, the way we express thanksgiving is verbally. If someone does something for you or they bring something to you, you might say, thank you. Or if someone at a restaurant brings you your food, a waiter or waitress, say, thank you. But really, that's a very shallow level of the understanding of what it means to be thankful or to be characterized in, in, in thanksgiving. The real measure of thankfulness is an actual response in action. You can see someone is thankful for something by the way that they live their life. Paul says, as you're praying and you're giving glory to God and you're asking things from God and you're serving God through prayer and, and all those different ways that we pray, if you're doing it in a characterization of thanksgiving, it's not just lip service. Thank you, God. Thank you. But one of obedience in action to what God expects of us as a believer. Let me ask you a question, because maybe some of you have heard this question posed before, is what if you woke up tomorrow morning and the only things that you had are the things that you thanked God for today? What would you have tomorrow? It's very easy to take things for granted. God is so gracious to us and gives us far beyond even what we ask for, that sometimes instead of remembering the, the little details of all that God has done and is doing, we begin to take it for granted and to assume that we should just have these things because of position, because of power, whatever. It moves from an, from a, it's really an attitude of entitlement, but Paul's saying, hey, no, it's our attitude is always one of thankfulness, recognizing that we really deserve nothing, but God has given us so much. Continue earnestly in prayer with vigilance characterized by thanksgiving, thankful prayers. It's not just words. It's action that shows a real thankful heart. So, number one, with with in our prayer life, and being devoted to prayer is prayers of thanksgiving. Second one is, in verse 3, it's prayers for evangelistic opportunities. Very, very important part of our prayers is recognizing that God opens doors for evangelistic opportunities. So, Paul says in verse 3, you know, first is, Paul is actually in prison at the moment of writing this. And he says, Meanwhile, praying also for us, that's him and Timothy, that God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. What's very, very interesting here is about the, the content of what Paul is asking. I can imagine that if I was in prison, limited in what I can do, probably being treated not so nice, I can't imagine Romans, Roman prisons are very nice, 
difficult life, unjustly detained. If I was writing a letter to someone or a church, I'd say, pray that I can get out of prison. This is miserable. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm innocent. These crazy people have locked me up. That might be the content of my request for prayer. Do you notice that in Paul's letter? I don't. Why? Because Paul's focus wasn't on himself. Paul recognized that even though he has found himself to be in a difficult situation, one that he would not desire for himself, one that he did not choose, he recognized that God had put him there, and he was going to make the most out of it to seize the opportunities to minister the gospel even in that environment. So he says to the church, hey, pray for me. Pray that as I'm interacting with my fellow prisoners, guards, whoever, that God would open the door of their hearts in a sense, that when He speaks, that the gospel that He preaches to them would find hold in their hearts, and it would have a transforming capability in their lives. In Acts 14, 24, Paul had nearly been stoned to death, and he and Barnabas had been traveling and preaching, and they came to the church at Antioch, and they said, God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This, eye of, this idea and sort of an illustration that Paul is using of this opening of this door is how God works in the hearts of people. See, we are called to be messengers of the gospel, proclaimers of the gospel, but God is the one who softens hearts, opens hearts to receive the truth of His Word. And Paul's saying, pray that our labor is not in vain, the message we're proclaiming is not in vain, but it will penetrate the hearts. How is your prayer life for evangelistic opportunities? Is that something that you're asking for? Are you praying for your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate, saying, God, give me the right opportunity, Bring the, allow the conversation to be perfectly set up for me, that they're searching for truth, I can proclaim the truth. I, I think too often we end up just wishful thinking or hoping, but we're not intentionally asking God for God to open a door in this person's life for us to speak truth to them. We sometimes miss that opportunity. And the reality is, is I'm totally convinced that if we are actually praying, saying, God, give me this opportunity, open this door, that He will actually do that. I'm fully convinced of that. But sometimes we just, you know, kind of just go on with life and sort of avoid the, the discussion don't want to have an awkward conversation, don't want to be politically incorrect, whatever it may be. But, but Paul is saying, hey, even in prison, Lord, give me opportunities. Open the doors for me to proclaim the truth. We should have no excuses. We have to sort of sometimes reprogram our thinking in the context of prayer to be less about just ourselves and more about, God, help me to be on mission for what you want me to do.
And I know for a fact God wants us to be proclaimers of His gospel to anyone and everyone that He gives us an opportunity to engage with. When I was um, in Bible school back in 2006, there was another Word of Life Philippines missionary. Um, He was one of our instructors at the Bible Institute, and as part of our practical ministry, uh, on weekends we would go into different communities to do evangelism. And he was sort of walking with me, and we were going through a community, and um, we went to a home, and um, I remember the man opened the gate, and we went inside, and the missionary I was with began to share the gospel with this man. And at the end of the conversation, um, he said to him, "Um, I prayed for you this morning. The missionary said to the man, I prayed for you this morning. And I remember thinking at the time, we just met this guy. How did you pray for him this morning? We don't even know. This is our first time meeting him, but you said this morning, like early this morning, you're praying for him. So I asked the missionary what he meant by that, and he said, well, I prayed for the person that God would give to me to share the gospel with. I didn't know this person's name. I don't know who they were, but I know that God has to work in someone's heart. And so I was praying, Lord, whoever it is, give me someone that I can share the gospel with. And I was like, wow, that that actually impacted me. I was like, I don't even have to know the person's name. And I can be praying, God, open the door of someone's heart today that I can talk to. And when you find that person, you already know God's been doing something in their life before you even knew them. Because God knows everyone's heart. God knows every person you're going to talk to before you even talk to it, talk to them. He knows the words that are coming out of your mouth before you even say them. So why not ask God to do an amazing work through you in the person that you could engage with today? That's what Paul was asking the church to do for him. Pray that these opportunities would come, that I'd have the words to speak when I engage people with the gospel. So number one, the first mandate, we need to be devoted to prayer, thankful prayers and prayers for evangelistic opportunities. Number two, we need to be devoted to a clear gospel. If you look in verse 4, in, in the context, again, of, of, proclaim, of speaking the mysteries of Christ, Paul says, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. The idea of making something manifest is to demonstrate, to prove to be, to bring to clarity. So, our method of of being devoted to a clear gospel is to proclaim the gospel in a very clear and easy-to-understand manner. We need to be accurate and sort of straightforward and simple to avoid confusion when it comes to the gospel. Unfortunately, we live in a world where there's confusion everywhere about what Christians even believe. That's why you got a thousand different denominations, because we can't even agree amongst ourselves let alone in trying to reach a lost world for Christ. So it's very, very important that we are clear in teaching and in preaching, but more than that, in conversation with people about who Jesus is, what He has done for you and for me. You know, we say we believe in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We believe in an exclusive gospel. It's not Jesus plus anything it's not plus works. It's not added to add Jesus to your other religions. It is Jesus Christ alone that saves. We need to be clear about that in proclaiming the gospel. And 
Unfortunately, I, I think this is actually part of Satan's strategy, is he knows that the most important life-saving message this world will ever hear is totally centered around the gospel. If he wants to spoil any message, it's that one. And so Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Simple gospel message is powerful. We've got to proclaim that gospel in a way that people can clearly understand. The world wants to live by sight, not by faith. The standard of truth and the standard of what's real in this world is what you can test, what you can run through the scientific method, what's repeatable, what's measurable. Disregard the spiritual. But God says in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you need to live by faith and not by sight. Even though our, we believe that Christianity is, is true, we believe that it's not based in, in, in fairy tales, but it's based in truth and history, we've got to live, still live by faith. So, our method of proclaiming the gospel must be clear. Also, Paul notes in the same verse, verse 4, he finishes that, those, that, that, that statement, that I make it manifest as I ought to speak. So, Paul is, is bringing this idea that it's not just… Uh, making it clear, but it has to be his conviction to proclaim it. It's in a similar context to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20. Again, in the context of prayer, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, because in, in asking for prayer, says, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak." We have to have a conviction that it is our responsibility to proclaim the gospel. It is not optional. Never will you see anywhere in Scripture that, that the, a Christian is to remain silent about their faith. In fact, every Christian has a responsibility to be vocal about their faith. You live it out in the way you live, yes, but we also are to speak the truth and to proclaim the truth. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God, not just by action. Action is important to verify our message, but we have to proclaim the truth as well. How convinced are you that it's your individual responsibility to be involved with that? It's not a corporate thing. It's an individual believer-by-believer believer responsibility to engage other people with the gospel. I had never shared the gospel in my entire life until I went to Bible school. I was 19 years old, and one of the very first weekends uh, as a student, um, we were being already taught about the message and, the, and different methods of, of sharing the gospel, and we were brought out to a community, and I had an evangelism partner with me, a Filipino man, and we went to… Um, that we're walking down the street, knocking on doors. I walked down a dirt path to a home, and I walked around the backside of the home, and there was a man an elderly man, had to have been in his 80s, in a hammock, just kind of rocking back and forth. And we introduced ourselves. We're from Word of Life. You know, we're having these gospel conversations. And, uh, you know, this was our first time out as students, so I began to do my best to share the gospel with this man. 
and my evangelism partner, he began to translate into Tagalog for me. And I remember just kind of going through what I had been taught, and I remember asking the man towards the end of our conversation, has anyone ever shared this with you before? Have you ever heard this message before? And he shook his head no. And I'll never forget the feeling that came over me, thinking, how in the world could this man be, you know, 80-something years old, and he had never in his entire life heard about biblical Christianity, about who Jesus is, about the gospel. It was mind-blowing to me coming from someone who had… I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and I would describe it as sort of a, a Christian culture community. There was a church literally on every corner of the streets in our town. And for me to think that there are people who had never even heard of the name of Jesus or, or who, had, who He was or His gospel was just absolutely mind-blowing to me. Now, I don't know if this man trusted Christ or not, but I remember walking back to the road to keep going down the street, realizing what just had happened, that I had actually shared the gospel with someone for the very first time, and the feeling that I had as a result of that was just overwhelming. And it was at that moment that I remember thinking about to myself, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to tell people about Jesus who don't know who He is because I know what He had done in my life and the, and the change that happened in my life. I want everyone to experience that. The joy of salvation can't be compared to anything else. And there's, a, there's billions of people in this world that have no idea who Jesus is. They don't know where they came from. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they're going. And we have the answer. We have the answer. And it's our responsibility to proclaim it. And so I have the joy of doing that as my whole, my whole life. It's a joy. But it's not just those that are called to be in full-time ministry. It's actually the calling of every single individual Christian to be engaging people with the gospel. So, is it your conviction? Because if it is your conviction that that is true, and Paul's words are true, and God, and God desires that for you, then it should lead to an action. There should be a result of that conviction. It's not just an intellectual understanding, but, it, but there's real effects in, in the concrete world of how that's played out as a believer. So, that's number two, devoted to a clear gospel. Number one, devoted to prayer. Number two, devoted to a clear gospel. Number three, verse five, we need to be devoted to using time wisely. Now, that's in the context of this sort of call to evangelism. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward those that are on the outside. So, how we live, how we act, how we carry ourselves as Christians, our testimony needs to be one of wisdom because those on the outside, those that are, that are not Christians, that are looking in, are watching. And your testimony is your most powerful evangelistic witness. You can talk to people about Jesus all day long, but if your life doesn't match your, what you're saying, people will not take you seriously. They will not even care to listen to you because they'll just call you a hypocrite and then your faith must be fake. But if your life, a changed life, matches a, what your speech is, those together is powerful. 
because they're going to ask you, why do you live that way? Why are you nice to those that are mean to you? Why do you not cheat and steal? Or why are your business practices, why don't you take bribes? Why don't you do all these things that the rest of the world does to make life easier? What's different about you? See, if you're walking in wisdom towards those that are outside, it will draw people. It will draw people to, to, to become and desire to have what you have. In fact, it's part of how I came to Christ. I don't have time to share my whole testimony, but part of the way I came to Christ, even though I grew up in a Christian home and grew up in a Christian community, I didn't actually get saved until I saw some, some Christians at Word of Life actually living out their faith in a way I had never seen before. And I said, I want that. I didn't have it. I wanted it. And I came to realize that the reason I didn't have it was I actually wasn't saved. When I got saved, my life changed. But it, I got saved because of the testimony of Christians that were living out their faith in a way that I'd never seen before. That's what it's like to the world. We've got to be wise with our, the way we walk, walking in wisdom. In fact, you know, the fear of the Lord, Solomon tells us in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want wisdom, which is applied biblical knowledge to practical life, it begins with fearing God, knowing what God desires of you and living it out. That's how we apply God's Word. So time and how we walk in wisdom within that time is very, very important. Now, let me read for you a poem that someone wrote. I'm not sure who wrote it. It's about time because Time is one of those things. It's like a currency, actually. It's, it's more valuable than currency. If you have money, you can earn more money, right? That's not hard to do. You start a business, earn money, right? Well, how do you earn more time? Time is more valuable than money because you cannot earn more. You are given a finite amount. Every second that goes by consumes whatever time we have left on planet Earth. Very, very valuable. All right, let me read this. If you foolishly spend your money, you can always earn some more. If you happen to melt your Sunday, there's plenty more at the store. If you happen to wreck your bike, you can get one just alike. Carelessly drop your candy bar, the candy store is not very far. But when you're old and look at the past, wondering how it went so fast, you realize all the things you waste, that of time you can never replace. Paul says you need to redeem the time. So, how are you spending your time? I, I, I submit to you there are two vitally important areas that we have to spend our time because there are only two things in this world that are eternal. The Word of God and the souls of men. Everything else will perish, but our souls live on forever and the Word of God. So where are we spending our time? Are we spending our time in God's Word? Are we learning it, reading it, absorbing it, applying it? Because everything in here is the, literally the instruction manual for how God wants you to live your life as a Christian. And how you live your life will be reflected in eternity. And also, people, the souls of men, relationships, ministry moves at the speed of relationships. So much of Scripture and the, and the instructions of how to live a Christian life deal with relationships with other people. 
either how you treat people or how you're talking to other people. And much of that is centered around engaging people with the gospel. So in this context, if we're to walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside, redeeming the time, it's specifically about are you engaging people who are not Christians with the gospel because the time is limited. Not only your time is limited, their time is limited, and time in general, we're heading towards the end of this world. God's prophetic calendar is it, we're getting closer to the end. Time is finite. Are we making the most of every opportunity that God gives us? Critical, critically important to maximize each and every opportunity we have to engage people for Christ. So, we're to, uh, you know, use our time wisely when it comes to evangelism, uh, but also recognizing that as the time comes near, we're drawing near to the end of this world. You know, one of the things about studying biblical prophecy, and I am very thankful for, actually, uh, Dr. Paul Lee Tan was my teacher for Ezekiel about 17 years ago, and uh, I was so thankful for that class because it really opened my mind and eyes to biblical prophecy in a fresh way I had never um, considered before. And I think about what's happening right now in the Middle East with Israel, and it is just unbelievable what is happening, and it's just showing us that we are headed towards the end. The Lord is going to return. He might even return today. If you read through Paul's writings, it doesn't take you much time to realize very quickly that Paul wrote from the perspective of an imminent return of Christ. Paul expected Christ to return in his lifetime. Imagine how much closer we are today to the return of Christ. Time is short. Are we maximizing it? The end is near. Moses, who wrote Psalm 90, said this, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in, in Rome, and do this knowing that the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, when we live in expectancy awaiting Christ's return, our diligent obedience becomes our main concern. Does the fact that the Christ is coming back motivate you to live for Him? Does it motivate you to share the gospel to your friends who are lost, who don't know Jesus? And once Christ comes back, it's going to be too late for them? Man, your love for other people and your knowledge of what's to come should motivate us to be engaging others for Christ. The end is near. We need to redeem the time. So lastly, number four, we need to be devoted to preaching with grace. Verse six, let your speech, and this is in the context of evangelistic outreach, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You know, when Jesus came to earth, this was a distinctive of His teaching. In Luke chapter 4, verse 22, people marveled at the gracious words that came out of the mouth of Jesus. He was gracious 
in his speech. And some of the things he had to say were, were, were against culture. They were against the norm. They were calling out sin and hypocrisy, but yet he was known for his gracious preaching. That actually needs to be a characterization of how we're proclaiming Christ as well. You know, we can get a, a bad reputation as, as believers as, being, as coming across as very judgmental, you know, talking all about fire and brimstone, all these things that you know, there might be some truth. There is truth. You know, hell's a real place. If you don't know Jesus, you're going there. That's true. But how we talk about God's grace, how we sort of decorate the gospel and making it so attractive and beautiful, and, and how we share it to people out of God's love and compassion, it's a very, very important way that we communicate the truth. If you don't communicate in a loving and compassionate way, it doesn't matter how true your message is, it will put people at a standoffish from you. They won't be interested in learning more. We've got to talk about the grace of God. In fact, that was Paul's message. Paul said that his message in life was to proclaim the gospel of God's grace. Acts 20, 24, the gospel of grace. I love it. I, I love that verse because that is how we're to proclaim the amazing love of God is in one of grace. So there's a grace on offense, and that is proclaiming the gospel like as we engage people in gospel conversation. But there's sort of also how we respond to those that are either asking us about our faith or sort of challenging us to learn more or to even challenge us generally in sort of a debate style about what we believe. Because we have to be ready in all occasions, in any manner, to go on the offense or go on the defense when it comes to proclaiming Christ. So, Paul finishes verse 6, says, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. We have to be ready. Peter uh, described it this way in 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense a ready defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. See, the, 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 the understanding here is people are going to ask you. If you're living your faith publicly, you're not a secret Christian, but you're, you're de declaring to the world that you're a Christian and you're living like it, it will cause people to wonder about you. Why are you different? Why do you act that way? In a, good, in a good sense. Why don't you return evil for evil? People asking questions, and you have to be ready to give an answer, a ready defense. And there's also the, the you know, people asking or challenging you about your faith. You know, in, in a lot of ways, biblical Christianity is not popular. It's not socially acceptable to, to declare that your way is the only way. In fact, that's probably the number one thing that people don't like about Christians is we say we have an exclusive gospel. It's Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You can't just add Him to what you're doing. You have to reject that and follow Jesus. People don't like that, so they're going to ask you questions about that. And Peter says, be ready to give a defense. It's okay for people to ask you questions, but, but be ready to share why you believe what you believe. Why are you passionate about your faith? What's the reason for that? And as you're describing 
and defending your faith, Peter says, do it with meekness and fear. Grace seasoned with salt, because that's how people's hearts will be tenderized for your message. If we lash out, walls go up. People don't listen. But if we're gracious and loving and compassionate like our Savior was, hearts are opened, doors, in a sense, are opened, and people are much more willing to receive what we have to share. You know, as Christians, it's, it's not really optional to say, well, I want to share the gospel, but I'm not comfortable, or I'm shy, so I'm not going to talk to this person. That, that's not how… The, the, I don't see any exceptions into here. I don't see anything saying, well, I'm an introvert, so I, I, I'm excused. No. God has given you His Spirit to empower you, to provide with you all the courage and strength you need to proclaim with boldness the gospel. In fact, the same Spirit that lived in Paul, that lived in the apostles, read all through the book of Acts, the amazing things that they did, that same Spirit indwells you. There's no excuses. We're totally prepared, totally equipped. So let's get ready. Let's, let's study. If we aren't familiar with some of the passages, let's study if we're not you know, prepared mentally to, to, to share certain things, let's get ready because those opportunities are there as we're praying for them, asking God to open doors. Let's be ready so that we know how to answer each one. These are mandates from Scripture. So number, let's just go through them real quick again. Number one, we've got to be devoted to prayer. That's verses 2 to 3. Number two, verse 4, devoted to a clear gospel. Number three, we've got to use time wisely evangelistically. And number four, we need to be devoted to preaching with grace. If these characteristics are a part of your life, get ready because God can use you. God desires to use you in some really powerful ways to impact this community right here around Grace Village, Quezon City, all the Philippines. That's our mission field. That's our responsibility as believers. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and his clear instructions to the church, his clear instructions to us, the example that he was, the types of prayers that, that he desired to be offered on his behalf, not for personal gain, but for the progress and, and, and forward movement of your gospel and your church in this world. Lord, help us to be ever mindful of that. Help us to be living in expectancy of Your return that motivates us for holy living, for evangelism. Help us be gracious with our speech and engaging others for Christ. But Lord, help us to have courage to speak up about Your gospel. May Your Spirit prompt us when those opportunities are given to us to give us courage to proclaim Your truth. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.